This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Danielle Prescott. Danielle is the author of Token Black Girl, which explores her 15-year career in the beauty and fashion industry at publications like InStyle, BET, and Teen Vogue. In this episode, Danielle and I talk about what led her to write her memoir, and her experiences about growing up Black in predominantly white spaces, and how pop culture and media influenced her early self-identity, and what changes Danielle would like to see in the fashion and beauty industry today. Okay, let's get to Danielle Prescott. So why don't we just dive right in? Okay. So congrats on your book, Token Black Girl, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I know a little bit about you from your book, but for those that don't know you and are connecting with you and your work for the first time, you were a beauty and fashion editor for 15 years at Elle and Style BET. Tell us a little bit about that industry and what led you to write the book. Sure. So I spent, yeah, around 15 years working in traditional women's media. So I did fashion and beauty at various publications. The last four years of my career, I spent as the style director at BET, which was my first departure from mainstream media to black media. And before that, I had, like you mentioned, worked at Elle. I worked at InStyle. I worked at Modoc Brandy. I worked at Teen Vogue. I worked at Interview. So I spent a lot of time thinking about beauty standards, writing about beauty standards, deciding 
what was trendy, what was cool, what we should give our attention to. And a lot of it was in service to white supremacy. And I really started examining my relationship to white supremacy in the beginning of 2020, like 2019 into 2020, I had made a New Year's resolution that I wanted to write a book. And I did not know what I wanted the book to be about. But in therapy, I had been working with my therapist on cultivating self-love. And she was just like, your main problem is that you don't love yourself. And I just thought it was like so absurd, partially because of my experience in that industry and the concepts of self-love and self-care being so commodified. Like everyone thinks that like self-love means you go get a massage, you go to a spa or you go on vacation or you buy yourself something because you love yourself. And I was like, yeah, I obviously do all of that. I love myself. And she was like, no, that's actually not what any of that means. And I was like, oh, really? What does it mean? And, you know, what we kind of uncovered was that my concept of self-love was very conditional or transactional. So I loved myself as long as I had the job that I wanted, if I had the clothes that I wanted, if I had the apartment I wanted, everything looked perfectly all of the time. And that was the only conditions in which I really was like, okay, I love myself or I'm acceptable. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to find the origins of where this thinking came from. And so when I started like kind of unpacking that, I was like, oh, all of this is because of white supremacy. And that is why I feel that I need to have my hair done or my nails done, or I need to have this closed. Like I need to be a member of this club because I am not conditioned to think of myself as good enough as I am. And so I was like, okay, let me see if I can figure out where this started. And because like, I love research. That is the kind of like writing that I do. It's all been personal narrative based on observation, based on research I started doing that and that's how we arrived at the book Token Black Girl. So thinking about your departure from what you were describing mm -hmm. as servicing white supremacy or working within that framework in terms of your career, what does it feel like, especially thinking about a lot of the reception around the book to receive a positive reception from some of the institutions and establishments that made you feel less than, or that you felt were not in alignment with you? Hmm. Well, I would say like institutionally, I don't know if it's been positively received. That's number one. But I want to hear more about that. Okay. But on a personal level, what I think is really remarkable about writing this book is how similar people's experiences have been. And I knew that this was going to be the case because I had a, originally pitched this as a docu-series when I worked at BET. And for a, a lot of reasons, like it never got made, but it was around the time where people were starting to talk about their frustrations within the fashion and beauty space, especially like major stars. Gabrielle Union, who she blurbed my book, she had, you know, had that, that big kind of dust up 
with America's Got Talent and exposing like the racism, like in some of the networks and like what that looks like. And this was not really something that a conversation that I think was happening frequently when I was much younger. So once I started recognizing that like, okay, people are now starting to talk about this and there is power in that connection that's being built. And so after I wrote this book, so many girls who either went to like elite private schools, boarding schools, or like, you know, super competitive colleges or universities had had so many of the same experiences, but because power is institutionalized, none of us talk about it, right? The only positive thing to come out of that, it would be like, oh yeah, like school was a great experience or yep, I went to that school and I survived it. And maybe on an interpersonal level, that would be something that we would say to each other, but not a public level. And I can't even tell you like how many people have confessed to me that they had undue disciplinary action, like taken against them by institutions, like when they were younger and I'm like so shocked, but the silence and the shame around those things happening is actually how the institutions retain power. And so talking about that is how we take some of it back and make sure that that doesn't continue to happen for other people. So just tracking back to the last question, your feeling is that the book hasn't been received well institutionally. Can you talk a little bit about that? No, I mean, I in 2020, also founded a DEI consulting agency with my business partner, Chrissy Rutherford. It's called 2BG Consulting. And we aid fashion and beauty brands in their anti-racism journeys. And, you know, one thing that is quite consistent, and I knew this would be the case just based on being a Black woman in media, that the enthusiasm for talking about equity and talking about race has just waned completely. And people are either fatigued by it or they're not interested in talking about it or they don't want to go into it. And mostly that's because they realize that being quote unquote canceled is not really going to affect their bottom line. So they're uninterested in actually like continuing that work. They're going to do like the bare minimum of like what's necessary, but like actually like examining their practices, examining the kind of like culture that they create. Yeah, that's, I knew it wasn't going to happen. And so I would say institutionally, I don't think that I have been like really welcomed by any place that I have formerly worked. People keep asking me like if I got any apologies, zero. <laughs> anybody like no I I actually apologized to a few people before I wrote the book people I felt like I had disrespected or like had had awkward interactions with but yeah no the the reverse has not happened at all Hmm. well that doesn't surprise me but I think you know (laughs) it's it's helpful to like just get more context in terms Mm -hmm. of what your experience has been Mm-hmm. How is generally how have you felt since you've written the back? Was it cathartic for you? Did it create some type of closure or healing or help you be able to focus on those encounters less? Oh, absolutely. It was it was extremely like necessary for me to like heal that part of myself. Also, like I mentioned, there's a lot of like shame that gets hidden in like some of these 
things. Like I had never publicly in the book, I have this story about how, when I worked at L, I wrote a story about Timberland boots and like got barbecued on the internet over it because I was unaware that my words had been edited before the story went live. And, you know, explaining to people that I am an editor, of course, but I also get edited. Like I'm not the kind of like end all be all. I can't just like hit live on anything that I want to post. Like that happens for a lot of reasons, but you know, helping people to understand that simply like my presence somewhere is not enough, especially if you're the only one to change an entire institution. So something happened in, I want to say like 2014 over a story I wrote about Timberland Boots. And I had never like publicly talked about it because it was so shameful. Like I was so ashamed by the fallout of it. And I'm like, I actually have nothing to be ashamed about. All I have to do mm. is tell people exactly what happened and what my intention was. And also like I had been suspended from high school and there was like a lot of shame around that. So and, and there are layers to this. I spent a number of years anorexic and bulimic. There are a lot of, there's a lot of shame around that. So just being able to like say it and like release it was so good for me. And yeah, it, it has been very transformative. I hear you on some of the things that I'm hearing you talk about, you know, whether it's like conduct issues when you were younger and disordered eating as a result of being in these deeply white environments that mm-hmm. make you feel less than and make you question everything all the time. I think just, I'm just wanting to acknowledge like the, the history that you're unpacking for me just resonates and makes a lot of sense. I mean, I had a very similar experience in a lot of ways because I, my most formative years were in South Africa. We moved there shortly after apartheid ended, maybe four or five years after. Mm-hmm. And I was the first Black girl in the school that I was placed at when I moved to South Africa as a private school. Mm-hmm. I'm Nigerian as well. So there's just so many layers of othering. And then also yep. just, you know, having to grow up in a post-apartheid environment was really oppressive, oppressive in a very different way than racism exists in the United States. That's why I was so drawn to talking to you about the book, because I just really understand how it feels to be the token, but not just only being the token, not even by a euphemistic, you know, kind of turn or phrase, like actually being the only one. The only Um, one, And I was the only one in my grade for almost two years when I was living there. So it's just like I was saying, the, the history that you're mapping out yeah, resonates in lonely. so many ways. Yeah. It's a yeah. very hard position to be in for a kid. And I think too, I don't know if you did this to yourself, but for a long time, I had like convinced myself that I didn't really have anything to be upset about, you know, and because I was so fortunate, right? Because like I, have two parents who loved me and decided to send me to private school. And they did that because they believed that was the best path of education for us. And I recognize, obviously, it was not a malicious thing. They were not like, oh, how can we make this kid's life so miserable? They were like, I really want to make this kid's life as good as possible. And I had a great life. So I didn't feel like I had the right to like complain about anything. I was like, well, I didn't suffer too much. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. 
This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So let's go back to the beginning for a second. So you grew up predominantly in white spaces, surrounded by magazine covers, movies, TV shows that just mostly showcased white, thin, blonde woman. I'll caveat before I dig into that. You know, yes. I think I was on Twitter, but there was a a post about Serena from Gossip Girl um, that just like came up on my feed. It was like a super cut of how many times she says like, I got to go, <laughs> which was really funny. Yeah. But I I was, that. Yeah, yeah, that was good. But the, the thing that I was so taken by, because I hadn't seen Gossip Girl since I mm-hmm. was a very different person, I just like didn't mm-hmm. interact with it at all. I was mm-hmm. I was really taken by that super cut because I was just like, wow, the person I was when I was watching the show was still very much wanting to be informed by that character's physicality, looks, affect, and how much mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. I'm like feel totally very clear about how like I want to show up or what feels like right for me. Mm-hmm. So pulling all of that together, you know, you grew up in and around this in a very deep, consistent way. How mm-hmm. did that affect you? And how did that impact your acknowledgement of your own blackness? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I I have a similar experience. Like I feel like when I look back and I, I write about this in the book, when I looked back at like the archetypes that were presented to me about like who to be, you know, it was seeming like Blackness was so associated with like negativity, with poverty, with like sadness and struggle. I was like, I, I don't resonate with that. And I don't want that to be on me. And I felt that if I absorbed media like that, then like, that's what I would become. So I went the opposite way and I went like full, like sweet Valley high. I was like, look at these girls. They have their own phone lines and cars and necklaces and, you know, personalities that are great and confidence. And that's what I wanted to like emulate. It's a fault of the media. It's a fault of like not being able to give humanity to characters of color properly. I was talking at another book event. Someone was like, what kind of show would have like helped you as a kid? And I was like, look, even though never have I ever is not made for like black girls specifically, like having a complex character like Davy is would have been so transformative like she has Mm. an inner monologue that is like an older white man which I think is hilarious but she is 
not necessarily this like nerdy goody two shoes, but she's also not necessarily like the hot popular girl, but we get to see like so many different complicated sides of her and giving characters, like giving that access to audiences is so important. And we just like, didn't have it. I didn't put this in the book, but I had a weird flashback the other day when I was looking at a slideshow of things. And I was like, oh my God, I remember like when I wanted to cut all my hair off and I bought a picture of Michelle Williams to the hair person. And like the hair person was very much like, like my sister and I would do this. I, I, I don't know how often my sister did it, but I know I definitely did it. She would always be like, your hair can't do that. And I was like, we'll get as close as you can. Like, I was like, I wouldn't even hear that she wouldn't do it for me or couldn't do it for me or why. I was like, I don't care. I want to get it close to this as possible. And like, I'm like, that's so crazy. But I didn't like the hair magazines at the hair salon. You know, there were, I don't know how to explain this, but in like the nineties and early two thousands, there were these magazines and they would have like, kind of like numbers and you would like pick, your hairstyle from the numbers, but because I didn't see anybody with those hairstyles, I didn't want them. They had no value to me. Mm. So I went to Vogue and I went to Elle and I went to all these magazines that I later ended up working for. And I was like, this is what I want to look like. Make me look like this. And when you said make me look like this, when you would get the look that you had been asking for, how did you feel? Like what was their satisfaction there? Like, how were you evaluating yourself? Well, first, I never got the look that I was asking for. <laughs> so let's be clear on that. There's a lot about hair in the book. I think most Black women will understand why. But, you know, it wasn't until I was like much older, I would say like mid-20s, that I finally got in touch with the kind of hair person who would like, like, I actually like messy hair. I don't think it's cool to like have your hair like too done. There was this controversy a few years ago where they had a black girl in a J. Crew catalog and they gave her like a messy bun. And on Twitter, our favorite place, they tore her apart. They were like, oh my God, this is horrible. Why wouldn't they do her hair? And I'm like, oh, her hair is done. I think it looks great. But, you know, there's so many different ways of viewing black hair that like to certain people in the black community, like it looks disrespectful. It looks like not done, but it was just not really like, it was just not popular amongst black people to have that. Now I have goddess braids. They have the community in a chokehold. I was like, oh my God, every girl has these braids, but it's funny because it's also a little bit messy, Mm -hmm. um, which is to me like the perfect combination But I think for a long time, like people were just very intolerant of like that even happening. So I never got the hair that I wanted until like much later in life. And now I'm very comfortable occupying that space. I don't care if people think it's not done. I don't care like to slick down my edges every time I like step outside. But I did feel a lot of pressure as a child to kind of like straddle like pleasing black people and pleasing white people with like how I presented everything in me, like my hair, my clothes, my body. And it was, it was a very like anxiety inducing space to be in. Yeah. I really resonate with this idea of like, I only got the hair I wanted later in life. I've had my locks now, I guess almost like nine, 10 years. I always Mm -hmm. cut my hair just mm-hmm. because I identify a big part of myself through having my hair in a bob. But yeah, I look back at my younger photos and it was, you know, 
extensions and all of these different, which are, which is actually a hundred percent fine too. It is. I really think that, you know, extensions, wigs, whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with. I'm one of those women who feel that the most, given the construct that we live in, whatever you need to do to feel good is really permissible for me. I'm not here to judge or, you know, make that, yeah, make that evaluation of somebody else. But at the same time, I just, I really resonate with just not, not being able to really embrace myself until a lot later. Yeah. It was like always something was like a little bit off and a little bit wrong, you know? And I was so like meek and I couldn't like really like say like, no, this is wrong. So they'd be like, do you like it? And I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. And then I would cry in the car home. I would cry in my mirror. And then I would do my hair again once I got home after having paid for it to be done. And so it wasn't until like my mid to late 20s that I finally got to stop doing that. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. So let's talk about TikTok for a second, because sure. I think, you know, when we were younger, there wasn't TikTok. It's, uh, the other, I keep bringing up Twitter, but this other thing happened the other day that I thought was so funny. It was an episode of The Hills, this this clip's going around at the moment, where you saw that, yeah. Where Girl, Kelly... we're on the same feed. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually kind of fun. That's funny. Yeah. But she, Lauren Conrad, was walking into an event. And the I can't remember the other woman's name, Kelly something. Kelly Catrone. Kelly Catrone, yeah. And there was no, there's no Google back then. So she couldn't really like look her up and be like, who is this person? And so I say that to talk about TikTok, the fact that you can just see everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. How how do you think that's impacting society in terms of beauty norms, body norms, et cetera? it's so interesting that you bring this up because I think that a lot of people try to argue that because we have social media, we're in such an evolved space and in terms of like what the beauty norms are and the beauty standard, but actually like those platforms and artificial intelligence reinforce like existing beauty norms and beauty standards. And so If you look at like Forbes has a list of like the highest paid TikTokers and like the most followed TikTokers, most of them will be very thin white women. And that is because they fit the beauty standard. And that's also like what it's a, it's like a, a circle that never ends. Mm -hmm. It just happens Mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again. So because we have TikTok, like, of course we can see more people, but it's not necessarily a great thing. I mean, if you really think about it, we're never supposed to like even talk to this many people. We're never supposed to hear this many people's thoughts. We're supposed to get this much information. And social media, as much as I like it, I don't know how great it is for humanity. But even removing like some of that context, it does not actually do the subversive thing that like many people are claiming it actually like does the thing that it's supposed to do, which is that it means that we are still valuing these things that serve white supremacy. 
So, so many brands and companies tend to get into the space of tokenization mm-hmm. rather than representation. What does mm-hmm. real diversity and inclusion look like in your opinion? I think what's hard about most companies, and this is like something I find when I start talking to brands, you know, when they want to get on anti-racism journeys is that they're trying to do a lot of like reactive work from like a backwards place. Whereas like, if you think about companies founded by black women or founded by women of color, they're founded from a place of inclusion from the genesis of whatever it is. It's to serve people who are not being served. Whereas like when certain brands start, it's like, oh, well, my customer is me. And I am already the top of the food chain, so to speak. If I'm like, I have enough money, I am, I have the, an able body, I like am beautiful on top of that, and I'm smart enough to start a brand. And that is kind of the issue that they're working backwards, being like, okay, so I started this thing. And a lot of brands are not really willing to acknowledge that their cachet is based on exclusivity. <laughs> like, like that's what fashion, it's the gasoline that fuels it. That exclusion based on many factors is mm. what gives something the rarity. And so because like, we're not willing to acknowledge that, we're not willing to say like, oh yes, we don't actually want everyone in here. You end up kind of lying to people. And so I'm just trying to get people to like be more honest about what the parameters of their exclusion are and like which ones they're comfortable with. Because in my opinion, there are certain ones that like are a given, right? Like there, if you're an old Navy customer, you're likely not going to be a product customer. And like, that's okay. Those, both of those brands like deserve to exist, but you can't then start adding factors. You can't be ageist can't be sexist, you can't be racist, you can't be sizist on top of all of those other things. Like if you want to pick elitist as your like parameter, fine, great, do that. But then don't add layer after layer after layer of exclusionary characteristics because now we have a major problem. Yeah. What advice would you give to young people today and even folks our age Mm -hmm. about trying to find their identity and negotiating that in the in in the midst of of where we are read that is the best thing i think that there have been so many incredible books that just like opened my mind to so many new ideas and and do a lot of work and showing that white supremacy is made up and it's only valuable if people believe it And so the more that you can like find texts and find evidence to support it being made up, the better you will be because you'll know like, oh, I don't need to believe this because it's garbage and it's made up and it's like so ridiculous. And you can also start to notice the patterns like white supremacy is very cunning and it will rebrand itself, (laughs) remake itself over and over and over again. But if you start to be able to recognize what those patterns are and like what it's trying to achieve, then you are very immune to it and very unaffected by it. And so, yeah, finding like outlets where that proves true, I think is really good. And also like it, once you start doing that, it makes you like enjoy things a little bit less. Like, you know, like you're going to be like, oh, I'm probably not going to watch this show 
because it's so willfully in service to that narrative that like we're just going to ignore racial issues or like that we are interested in propping up this like further narrative of like white supremacy existing right so you start to be like oh I don't need to like even let that stuff into my brain space and I think that's like a a much healthier place to be in I think if I would have known those things growing up I I think it would have been much better for me what changes do you want to see in the fashion and beauty industry I think we need a lot of changes. Here's here's what I notice about brands, what they try to do. Brands try to appear as if they are people, but people are not brands and brands are not people. A brand is an institution. It is an entity. So this kind of like facsimile, like reproduction of like a brand being like, we're talking to you. It is like creepy and weird, especially because it comes from such a a place that is so disingenuous. Like it really is like only trying to get you to connect with it so that you buy something and then you buy more. And that so you, it fosters an emotional connection. And I'm like, I think that's like kind of unnecessary. And I wish that that would happen a little bit less, especially because then when a brand inevitably fails at doing the right thing, like either in terms of inclusion, when it, whether it be race, whether it be age, whether it be size, you are already feeling so emotionally connected to it. You have a hard time disconnecting from it. And that's what they want. But you should be able to be like, actually, I'm not going to buy this thing anymore. I'm not going to engage with this thing anymore because it is a thing and it is not a person. This is not my friend because I shop here. It is a thing and I'm able to separate from it because it's not my friend. And I want people to like, I want consumers to understand that. And I want brands to stop doing that. And I think that would help a lot of things like in the industry. And I would also just love a lot more accountability. I mean, that is like a pipe dream. I don't think will ever happen. So just to, to tie it all in a bow, I'm curious what inclusivity feels like for you now and when was the last time you felt seen heard held that's so nice I think for black women for me inclusivity is a very natural state of being and so all of my friends have always looked very different and that's also I think why I had such a hard time with like racial conversations when I was younger because like my, our world was extremely diverse, right? My, my parents met in college. Both my parents are black, but my mom has two best friends. One is a white woman. One is a black woman. The white woman's married to a black man. The black woman's married to a white man. They each have, one has three kids, one has two kids. And like all of us just like running around together. Like I never thought about, I was like, this is like how people want, this is what they think of when they, (laughs) they think of like how they want things to like, shake out. And so moving to a space like New Orleans, I moved to New Orleans from New York City, where again, like my social circle was extremely diverse. I never was in my adult life. I didn't really spend time as like the token black girl any longer because I had a lot of black friends. 
in all of my circles, but I came to New Orleans and my life is extremely segregated here. This is a extremely socially segregated city. And I was really unprepared for that. I did not understand it. So I have black friends in the city who literally don't speak to white people. And I have white friends in the city who literally don't speak to black people. And I mean, they speak to them because the city is 65% black. So they'll say hi and they'll be occupying the same spaces, but they will never be interacting. And I have never seen anything like it. It is so odd. And so for me, like, I feel very, I feel like my whole world is very inclusive. Whenever I have, when I am in charge of the guest list and parties, like, you know, that it will be very mixed, but you know, I still am having like experiences where I'll go to something and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be the only black girl. If I agree, if I say yes to this invite. And that has been like a little bit strange to like re-experience like as an adult, as like a conscious adult, like what that is like here. But for the most part, I think, especially every book event that I've had, everything that I, I get to participate in, I feel really seen, heard, like held all of those things, all of the positive things, like I, I think happens to me more often than it, it doesn't. Well, I am so intrigued by what you just described in terms of your living experience in New Orleans, but I think yeah. that that in itself is a whole separate conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but I I really have enjoyed chatting with you. I think that the book is so important, especially for us, mm-hmm. but I think also for anyone who wants to have a better understanding of what this experience is like I think that your book provides a portal to that and I'm really grateful that you wrote it thank you so much I'm grateful you read it there is so much work to do but I also feel that sometimes we can put a part of the work on pause and then be able to celebrate the fact that these types of books are being made now too which I think is so important massive I write about this a lot, but in 2014, there was a book conference, like a, they, they have these like in, in publishing, it's like give people like in-person experiences. They can like meet their authors and it was for children's books. They had 30 authors, humans and one cat and all of them were white. I think the cat probably was not white, but like in 2014, like that's not that long ago. And, and publishing is still such a white industry. Like Mm -hmm. I think that the only person, the only black author who is currently on a bestseller list is Michelle Obama. So I also knew that like naming the book token black girl would be very alienating to like a lot of readers, like the way the cover looks, like putting it in the title. Like I could have like named it something like sparkles and shoes or like (laughs) like, (laughs) more fashion related, but I intentionally wanted to call token black girls in, but that does end up kind of alienating potential white readers. And unfortunately, like black people are still a minority. So if you want your book to like bust out, break out into the mainstream, you need a lot of white readers. You know, there is a reason why like in the summer of 2020, the the bestseller list looked like they did because finally white readers started engaging with this kind of like educational anti-racism content. And they're not really doing that anymore. And Mm. that's why we're now getting really siloed. So hopefully like 
my book opens up more doors for people to be able to tell their story because I write this in the book. Blackness is not a monolith. Everyone has a different experience. You just heard Erica, you said like you grew up in South Africa. That's a totally different experience than what I had. And of course that deserves to be written about as well. There's no way that like people can, you know, or anyone should read my book and be like, oh, great. I know all there is to know now about racism. I figured it out. It's a very specific kind of storytelling. So I hope that more people get the opportunity to, to tell theirs. Thanks for listening to my chat with Danielle Prescott. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, Token Black Girl. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.